Welcome to another episode of the Wood Couture podcast. Today we are at HBA Dubai, the design giant with the managing director EMEA, Philip Gillard. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you, my friend. For people that do not know, Philip has more than two decades of design experience, 17 of which spent at design giants Gensler, an extensive traveler in US, UK, and China. And finally, we have it here in Dubai, all for us. And we want to know everything about his journey. Philip, for all our friends out there, where did your journey start? I think um, very young, like, like a lot of designers. Um, I grew up in Bristol in the UK, surrounded by the work of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. He was an engineer, an architect, a a inventor, um, a bit like the UK version of Da Vinci, really. Um, so surrounded by that, it was always deep in my heart that that was something that I would do. So uh, yeah, Bristol's a very special place. We were just talking about how how amazing it is, um, but you're surrounded by culture, by art. Um, you know, I went to school with a number of uh, very talented people. It's the home of Banksy. Um, who's my age and he's a very good footballer, by the way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very much where I grew up. So how, obviously you're very proud of your uh, tenure at uh, Gensler, and yeah. uh, how that have shaped you as an architect? Um, wow, so many ways. I, I think, um, you know, the starting point was a friend, a uh, friend's father worked with Art Gensler in the 60s in the Caribbean and introduced me. And you can't fail to be impressed by um, art. Um, you know, he passed away this year, so that's obviously a big loss to the industry. But he was a giant of a man. He was funny. He was just such a warm, welcoming person, uh, particularly when I was younger. and. He was also not just AIA qualified, he was RIBA qualified. So for me, it wasn't just about interiors, it was about design in its broadest sense. So um, being on that journey with art and so many great leaders, um, you know, Diane Hoskins, who's uh, one of the CEOs there now, amazing, amazing person. Um, just surrounded by that talent, you can't fail to be um, inspired every day. So. The 17 or so years that I spent there were uh, amazing growth for me. Lots of challenges, lots of opportunities, uh, not just in terms of design, but travel. Um, I managed to spend a lot of time in the States and obviously in the Middle East as well. Um, you learn a lot about yourself, you learn a lot about your design skills, but I think you also learn a lot about people. Um, you know, clients, what they need, how to get the best out of them as well as teams, um, how to create great experiences. So whether it's architecture or interiors or landscape or anything, it, it can be amazing if you have the right um, collaborative approach. And so that's, for me, one of the biggest things is fundamental to what I learned at Gensler. Um, you can tread the path on your own, but it's quite lonely. If you do it together, it's much more fun. So you emphasize 
that is about people. And uh, along your journey, have, do you have a figure or somebody that say, that's my mentor? You know, who's your, has been your mentor? Yeah, well, art played such an important part in my life. Um, I was obviously very sad uh, to hear he passed away this year. But I think one of the biggest things about somewhere like Gensler is there's someone somewhere across the world that we became so connected that you could go to for a certain thing. You know, it might have been Joe in New York or Diane in DC or Andy in LA or, you know, Chris or Dave in Chicago. You can pick up the phone because you've created that connected network. Um, so I think it's a range of people always. Having one person be that person can be quite difficult, I think. Um, but from an overall global perspective of an inspirational figure in my life, it, it, was, it was art. You know, every time I, I spent in the same room as him or spoke to him, you come away feeling great. You know, very few people have that capability to, to change you um, to that extent. And I, I feel very humbled that I was able to spend the limited time I did with him. So yeah, I would say he's, he's the guy. How, do you think that organizations like that, they're giants, same, same giant as HBA on the interior architecture, yeah. but that it will be the same without a figure like that, a mentor like that? It's difficult, isn't it? You know, I, I would say that Art and the board, and particularly, you know, Diane and those guys, they did an amazing job at succession planning um, and have gone through that again, so that next level of leadership. Um, retaining that culture is really hard. You have to work so hard at, at that, and, and they do. And, and that's what I see here at HBA as well. Um, you know, the new leadership in, um, in the firm, uh, Chris Godfrey, um, Andrew Moore, um, you know, Jack Cosey and Leo, the, the executive committee, they're creating the firm for the next 10, 15 years. Um, and, you know, when they asked me to join to be on that journey with them, it was a, a challenge and an opportunity I couldn't turned down. So culture and talent are, they, for me, they go hand in hand. They're, they're absolutely the driver of creating great design solutions and great design um, momentum. So um, yeah, whether it's Genza or HBA, you still have to work really hard at that. The question I have for you is that, obviously, you were in leadership positions before. And, and you are in a leadership position now. Does a leader of a, a design firm lose touch with the design because now he has to take care of the business rather than the design? So how, how do you yeah. feel about that? I think that sometimes that can happen. And when you do, you have to get back in touch with who you are as a person, as a designer. Um, you know, sometimes that might be traveling. Like I was just saying, I went to Italy over the summer, very lucky to be inspired by Michelangelo and Da Vinci and come back empowered and, and feel really good to go. Um, but you have to balance it. You have to balance 
as much as you'd like to be designing all the time or being involved with clients and design projects all the time, you have to balance running the business, looking after all kinds of other things. So if I can create a relationship where in any day or any week I'm not 50-50, but sometimes it might be 70-30 or 30-70, but feel like I've done both, then I feel good about myself. I feel, I feel happy. Um, sometimes if it's too much of one and you're thinking about the other, it, it can be out, out, of, out, of, uh, out of balance. So it has to be a bit of both. Um, I'm lucky I have great people helping me, um, supporting me, um, to make sure that those things happen whilst I'm doing one or the other, um, whether it's design or the business side. Um, but yeah, I, I agree, as a leader, you, you have to really focus on where your strengths are and make sure um, you, know, you get the right talent in place to, to fill the gaps. Um, and literally kick you out of the way when, they're, right. when you're getting in the way. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the big things are always said to me, just get out of the way, Phil. Let them, let them grow, let them flourish, um, let, them, let them do their thing. Um, and I always respect that. How, uh, also uh, very interesting because you are an architect yeah. by, by uh, background and then you come in and leading an interior architecture firm. Yeah. So how do you approach things? Uh, you know, I mean, do you see differences in the way things are done in, uh, yeah. between the two disciplines? I think so. I think um, as an architect, I'm looking at things slightly differently. Um, not, it's not right or wrong, it's just different. Um, you know, we have a number of projects and I think part of our growing work is about repositioning and refurbishment of existing assets. So there's perhaps more opportunities as an architect to um, add value to, to those assets by carving away structure and coordinating structure and MEP and so on and so forth um, that perhaps um, interiors may not look at initially. Um, but once you, you start them on that path, it's, it's tremendously exciting. Um, I think that the architecture industry is a bit more ahead in terms of technological transformation um, and a sort of collaborative working. Um, so we're definitely developing that in a more robust manner, particularly in this region. I think it's, it's really um, healthy in terms of the amount of clients who are demanding those things from us. Whereas even as recently as three, five years ago, it was a different sort of industry. Um, so yeah, I think being an architect has helped in that way. Um, I also have to get out of the way and let the interiors guys do what they love to do, um, you know, and trust the talent that we have, which is amazing, and produce great results. So it's, it's very much about each of those studios, each of those teams having their own energy and their own direction. Um, and then just making sure that the design quality is consistent across the board. Um, so that's why we have a thorough and really robust design review process every Tuesday. Um, everyone's involved in it, so it's much more of a sort of empowered session. Um, and it's also fun, it gets some of that culture back to where it should be. I saw you have a very young, talented um, uh, workforce, you know, yeah. very energetic and uh, 
How do you keep motivating this young uh, generation? You know, <laughs> what's your tips? Um, I'm, I'm, I feel old now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're wise. Uh, I think um, trying to be relevant is is always hard. It's always a struggle, you know. It's it's um, part of that journey, though. And uh, I think just being open to conversations to help them realise they can grow their career in a number of different pathways within HPA. Um, and let them know that there's a safety net there for them to make mistakes and this is part of their learning process. Um, I think once they feel safe, um, they're then able to contribute, they're then able to feel empowered and invested. And so part of the sort of, it's not a business school thing, but part of the, um, David Marquez, who's a nuclear submarine commander, amazing, book called Turn the Ship Around. He, create, he coined the phrase leader, leader, uh, rather than leader follower. If, if you can get people at all levels to feel like they're leaders within their own bubble, even at the most junior level, they will have autonomy and they will take ownership and they will give you much more. So for me, the, the answer is really about how do you make everyone feel an owner and empowered. Um, it was something that Genza did really well. Um, so I'm able to take a lot of the lessons I learned from Genza to here. Um, and I don't think that matters whether it's architecture or interiors, whether it's lighting or art, all of those things are part of an integrated design approach. So, so for me, it's, it's really about having great talent that wants to succeed and want to do better um, rather than being subservient or just here for a job kind of thing you know um, those guys will flourish those guys will grow um, and they'll be your future design leaders in many years to come you, you talk about creating a safety net yeah. where a risk-free environment for them to make mistakes and learn from yeah. it what's your your favorite failure that they taught you a lot in life yeah, I mean, you can have 10 great years and six terrible months and you learn so much in those six terrible months, don't you? Um, and I think sometimes when people talk about work-life balance, they perhaps miss what that means and that interconnectivity between your personal life and your work life and how they actually snowball and influence each other. Um, you know, being a parent also impacts that. Um, you know, I've got two young adults and, and that was, was challenging back, God, crikey, over a decade ago. <laughs> um, and that sort of coincided with really trying to push Gensler, architecture, London, lots and lots of travel. Um, and I, I, think it's, I think it's fair to say I, I sort of failed as a parent. And that's pretty tough when your kid says to you, can we see more of you next year? And you add up the days and you sort of realize, crikey, if I left on January the 1st, I wouldn't get back to August. I've been traveling that much. It sort of really hits home, right? Um, so you then sort of realize, why am I doing this? Why am I 
traveling so much? Why am I putting myself out there so much? Is it because I want to? Is it because I don't have the team that I can delegate and trust to? And then you realize you haven't invested your time and energy in the right areas. So for me, that's why talent and delegation through growth of team and supporting team and pushing team has become such an important part of my role since then. Not just from a selfish perspective, I travel less and I become a better parent, but also it's the right thing for them. Um, so the best reward I can ever have is that they're successful. And if they're successful, I feel successful. Yeah. You know? But uh, considering that, you know, obviously you clearly mentioned that you sacrifice your kids for, yeah. you know, reaching a level in your career. But w what's your views on the notion or, or on the question that is it possible to be a successful parent and as well as a successful work leader? Or one needs yeah. to sacrifice the other one? But what's your views? I think people do it in their own way. Um, but you have to make, and failures are, are strong words, isn't it? But you have to make mistakes. You have to grow. If, if you keep winning, you don't grow as much. So you, you just become comfortable. Um, you grow by learning. Getting in the panic zone sometimes, but not living there, and then coming back and learning. And as the more you learn, the more you, your comfort zone grows as well you only really grow by making mistakes and understanding what you could have done and how you could benefit from those mistakes. I think perhaps in my younger career it was more about the drive we had to build architecture, the drive we had to grow the region um, and I think now looking back on that we could have done that in a number of different ways. Um, whether they would have been just as successful or not, who knows, but I think they would have been better balanced. Um, so yeah, I, I do believe you can be a great parent and a great business leader, um, but you have to work just as hard at both, right? Um, yeah, my wife and I were having a conversation, you know, just last night about how she's transitioning from full-time parent to having her own business, and she's full-time in her business. How are we now juggling that? Um, and, and it just needs sacrifice and compromise and, and a clear timetable of you're doing this and you're doing this. So it's, uh, it can be difficult at times, absolutely. Mm. Um, but I think everyone does it in their own way. And, and particularly, you know, young mums, they juggle so much more than us as guys. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible what, what they do. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish I had half their talent in doing that. It's, it's amazing to watch. So we've got a number of um, professionals who are also full-time mums here. And they work from home or work remotely or they juggle their days. And, you know, that flexibility is something they appreciate. But at the end of the day, they always get it done. So... Yeah. It, it's interesting you mentioned about, you know, I mean, it's fantastic for the people working at yeah. HBA. It's refreshing to have a, a yeah. company, the value, the being a mother is actually yeah. a Incredible. plus. Yes, I mean, absolutely. It's a, it a new set of skills. 
but uh, the design industry seems to get in a grip with uh, gender equality. Yeah. Have they done enough, in your opinion? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I think simply put, no, you never do enough. And, and also in terms of diversity, uh, we, need to, we need to do more. Um, you know, and I, I had a, a conversation with, with Diane about this last year and pushing to do more and what could my contribution be. Um, I think as an industry, particularly in, in this part of the world, um, we need to do more. You know, there need to be more female leaders, there need to be more um, diversity across the board. Um, in all organizations to reflect um, not just where we are in the world, but the makeup of any global company, you know, and that's something that um, I'm very proud to say that when I was working uh, with Diane and Gensler, they've made big inroads recently, since I left, but, you know, they've made big inroads and, and I'm very proud of that. Um, I think the industry as a whole can do more. Um, and I think it has to do more, it has to keep pushing, it has to keep expressing um, the world we live in, or reflecting the world we live in, I should say, um, which isn't a, a male, mid-50s, white group, right? Um, so whilst I'm sat here, and I feel very privileged to sit here talking to you as a leader of HBA, um, the next people that um, push me out of the way need to be much more diverse um, and I think it's quite simple. You need to find unity in diversity so it's a... Well sometimes sometimes having polar opinions creates amazing results you know it can also as long as it's in a respectful way it can also create healthy or unhealthy tension in a design uh, world but uh, I think um, you know, we have some amazing talent here and I'm very proud that they will become that next level of leadership, um, not just in Dubai, but in the firm. Um, as we were walking around, I, I yeah. pointed some of them out. Most of our project directors uh, are female. Um, and, I'm, and I'm really happy that that's the case. So for our friends out there, big brownie point. <laughs> I, I promise you. The majority are female, so we need to give them big brownie points of our friend at HBA. You talk about working harder, and I've got a beautiful quote in here that is your attitude pushing boundaries. In 2018, in Middle East construction, you quoted, we need to work harder to create memorable experiences through design. Yeah. I sense you envisage a problem. And uh, why do we, you guys need to work harder? In general, the industry need to work harder. I think back then, and, and I think it's still true now to a certain degree, um, part of the design solution uh, wasn't so much copy-paste, but it wasn't as well considered as perhaps it should be. Now, that might be time constraints, or it might be the designer, or, or a, a number of things, but um, as an example, on one of the projects we're working on now, we've challenged the client to create the best experiences from the moment you arrive, even if that's in a car park. 
you know, it can't be arrive in a car park, come up into the building, and then you start to experience that. So I think for us, part of that storytelling, part of that narrative, um, part of that journey is about a holistic view of design so that the architecture, landscape, and interiors work together in synergy. Um, when, when I was in the States uh, for my master's, it was the architect does the outside, the structure guy does the bit in between, and the interiors does, the, and there was very little dialogue. Um, and I feel that's a lost opportunity because the landscape should flow with interiors. The architecture and interiors should have a dialogue about how you create the story. It should create a series of moments. Um, and you know, the project we're working on, on now is all about those moments. So as a visitor to whatever building typology it is, you, you want to leave having felt inspired or calm or whatever those experiences are, you know, depending on the typology. Um, and I really feel that design can influence that. I mean, that's the power of design. Um, you know, if your food's not great, you, you remember it. But if the ambience in, the, in a restaurant or a, a cinema or a shopping mall or whatever it is, Design can make those things better. And I think the opportunity we have here at HBA is, is really significant. We can, particularly through hospitality, but using those hospitality skills to create memorable experiences for all guests, visitors, um, people that use buildings, whether it's a school, whether it's an entertainment venue, doesn't matter. It's take that skill that you have and absolutely deliver on that. It's not, oh, this is what we do for a reception. It's what can that reception be? Um, how can you change people's lives through the power of design? Uh, that was very much something that we used to focus on a lot when I was working on, on schools and change the paradigm of how you learn. Um, and I don't see any reason why you can't apply that to any building typology that we have, even those ones that are yet to be created. So, you mentioned hospitality. Um, where do you see hospitality design going? And, uh, and has COVID changed or shaped or you know, made people rethink the way they design spaces? What's your views on all this? I think in many ways it has uh, changed because of COVID. Obviously, um, not being able to travel so extensively has made um, local and regional tourism very much more important in terms of the GDP of these areas. Um, I actually think that certain operators have made design decisions based upon COVID in terms of materiality um, that we're seeing run through uh, a lot of our design projects. But I also think it's an opportunity to re-engage with humanism. I think a lot, I mean, even this, sitting this close, we were talking about, oh, can we get this close? During COVID, a lot of people lost touch with what 
humanity is, I think. You know, we need as humans, we need to shake hands, we need to hug, we need to feel that connectivity with other humans. And I think hospitality gives us a platform to celebrate that. It gives us the opportunity to really highlight and almost exaggerate and supersize some of those moments. Um, I had the distinct um, pleasure last week of being in Medina for the first time, um, looking at a few hospitality assets there. Amazing experience, absolutely amazing. And I have no doubt that had I not traveled for such a long time, it wouldn't have been such an impression on me. Um, so that, that freedom, that, that ability to travel, whilst um, didn't quite have my rhythm of that normal traveling week to week kind of thing, um, it, it, was, it was just so meaningful um, being there, you know. And I, I definitely see that as the restrictions reduce and as people get vaccinated and all of those things, um, that it will open up a bit more. But I think it will have changed. What, what, what part of your experience in Medina touched you? I think, you know, I'd been to Mecca before, but I hadn't been to Medina. So I, I think just the, the hospitality, the warmth of the people, um, you know, obviously I, I wasn't there on the religious uh, pilgrimage, but being able to observe that, being able to be that close to the haram, um, being guided through the, the story um, and the history, the, the, the sensitivity of the history of uh, Prophet Muhammad, his resting place, and, and, you know, the physical fabric of Medina, how you know, the lava and the, uh, it, it erupted and they had to travel and only enter through the north of Medina. And, you know, the, the, the amazing rocks and mountains, it, it just felt very special. Um, so I, I felt very, very humble, actually. It was, it was good to get grounded. It was good to, um, good to feel like something we're doing there can come from a place that's so special. It's, am it's amazing listening to you, the passion you put into the narrating your journeys, yeah. your experiences, and how the industry needs to look after humanity more. Yeah. But then, let me tell you, in the previous episode of the Wood Couture, I had some of your peers of the industry telling me that in the last three years, they never had, as part of the scope provided by clients, no scope about su sustainability, yeah. which is, you know, we forget about the beautiful planet. What's your views and how is the industry doing to, 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 I think, to um, live up to that? Well, I, I, I think there's a, there's a huge challenge. Um, you know, for, for me, it's not just about sustainability. Um, you know, the, the sustainability covers so much. Yeah. Um, it's, how, it's not just how we use materials or waste, it's not just how we produce things or ship it in from over 500 kilometers away for lead points and that kind of thing. I think it's about also creating place-making and local destinations, being culturally sensitive, um, 
you know, the, the use of nature, connecting humans to nature is, is, is absolutely key. We, we, as one of our projects in, in Saidi, we created a design narrative around hybrid, which is that actually it's the man-made piece that infiltrated nature, not nature being put into a man-made environment. Um, so sometimes when you just turn the viewpoint around and you look differently, um, you can create something very special. Um, at the end of the day, we, we need to look at our planet differently. Um, and I think educating clients and developers and, and other people about everything we do uh, comes from us. Um, I do feel that with a lot of new buildings being done, uh, a lot of our work is on repositioning and refurbishing existing assets and I feel that that's definitely um, a good place to start rather than it's nine years old, knock it down, start again. Um, I think there's so much we can do with existing structures and as an architect I like to carve volumes and shapes within existing structures and then see how that helps. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot more we can do. Um, but it takes the whole industry to gather together. Um, you know, Boris Johnson and other world leaders are meeting, I think, next week for the COP summit, and they need to really put down some uh, strict protocols back in place. Uh, I know the US will re-sign, um, but we need that level of leadership so that we can then really push against that. Uh, I think that will make a difference. It's, uh, I have a killer question for you yes, because uh, I can see that <laughs> I, I could sit in here 10 hours and listening to you and your stories and I'm sure that we, we, we heard nothing yet you know, I mean, uh, of your, all your years of experience. <laughs> but you've got so much passion and you put so much into the design. You're coaching your team to create the most amazing experiences, not yeah. places, experiences. Yeah. And then you have suddenly somebody sitting across to you, they say to you, oh, we need to value engineer this. Yeah. What's your reaction when you hear the word value engineering? <laughs> Probably the same as most people's or sense of, sense of dread initially. Um, uh, I always try to say to my clients that value engineering is a two-way process. Can we improve things? Can we add value? Value engineering isn't just cost cutting. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we, we must start all projects with the right budget. You know? And it's not just a budget, it has to be the right budget so that it matches the brief, it matches the expectations, it matches all of those project goals and parameters. Um, you know, and if you set that off properly and guide that journey, you shouldn't really need value engineering in the traditional sense of what people mean. But if there's an opportunity because so many of our projects are, let's say, a year or so in design and then maybe, depending on where the site is and the contractor, another year or two years down the line, by the time you get to the end of three years or, or sometimes longer, um, you know, Mashereb was nine years, technology and the world has changed. So what flexibility is there in our design 
to safeguard certain things and see where you are later on. I know, for example, from Richard Rogers, when they were doing Lloyds of London, the technology had changed maybe 10 times by the time they come to do the building. So the IT systems and all those things were brand new when they put them in, not when they were designed. So we need to future-proof a lot of our work. We need to look at it in terms of that gestation period as well. What's the right thing to do? Um, if we start looking from a more holistic perspective at the bigger picture, particularly we were talking about whether not looking at things just as a single asset but a portfolio of assets, what's the right thing to do from a portfolio perspective, not just that project, then I think that will guide us not, to, not just in terms of value engineering but also in terms of sustainability um, and other things. For me, that always comes back to the simple question. What's the right thing to do? And I ask that every day of our team and of various things. I know you want to do this because it saves money, and I know you want to do this because it's amazing, but what's the right thing to do? If we do that, we won't go far wrong. But the unconventional truth, and the truth <laughs> that no one to admit, is the value engineering, it is a politically correct way of saying, I don't have the money to create exactly what you design. So your design integrity goes out of the window. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I, I think that's what why... What are the other times? I think on a lot of our projects, we start with the right budget. Um, you know, as an example, we, we have a, a project um, where we did phase one, and the brief is simply take what you did in phase one and take that all the way through the rest of the hotel. So that detailing, that design intent, that look and feel, all the way through. And if you can improve upon that, great, let's do that. So as we do that, that expectation of materiality, scale, proportion, beauty goes along with that, but also cost in terms of the local cost on FF&E, the local cost on materials. And that may well have fluctuated over the time from phase one through to phase two. Um, but that's their aspiration. So when you cost that at the very beginning, you say, this is what this now costs. You have to get approval of that. You have to move forward with that. Otherwise, you're designing abortively. You're designing not correctly. You know, so you don't want to go too far down the road and then say VE. It's a waste of effort. It's a waste of talent. Yeah. So if you get to that point where they genuinely say we've run out of money and like, you know, the example you were giving, they, they don't have that money. Um, then you should have figured that out before you got there, really. Interesting, because what you say right now is the Bible of how to avoid value engineering. And, uh, and you mentioned before about time. Yeah. Time is of essence. And, and now your example saying what we had costed at the beginning may not be relevant at the end of the design process. Yeah. So would you endorse the idea of the collaborative approach and bringing in manufacturers through the design process Absolutely. to keep updating that? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, we, we go out to the market I mean, you've seen the extensive library. We look at the cost of all those materials. 
that we put forward, um, you know, even at pre-concept stage. We have ideas, we need to make sure that it's relevant. We need to make sure um, that it makes sense for each project, each client. Um, otherwise, we're just designing in a vacuum. And, and that's not good either, right? Um, so I, I think we have to stay in touch with all markets, all levels, um, all the way through the process. Um, we're not cost consultants and we obviously collaborate with a lot of cost consultants and, and they have their own views on what things cost. Um, but ultimately we're the experts when we're putting forward fabrics, furniture, materials. Um, we need to own that process. And you know, in owning it, it may cost slightly differently in this location versus this list, but at least we have a, a sense of where we are um, on any given design. And you know, it still doesn't mean we don't get to a point where we get to DD and they say, right, now we need to value engineer, but at least we can approach that from a point of confidence and knowledge as opposed to reactive. VE. For me, there's proactive VE and reactive VE. If it's proactive, because we know that's where we're going, you know, that's not so bad. But if it's reactive, where you think you're okay all the way along and then suddenly you're hit with, why wow, you're 30% you're over budget and you didn't know, um, then that's not a good place to be. So, but again, even when that happens, I think we have the talent and the strength and depth to be able to pivot and, and react to that um, to hopefully achieve the bigger picture, um, but just using different materiality. So, considering now you are in Dubai and uh, you know, we have the wonderful Burj Khalifa, and uh, I'm gonna put a massive white canvas, what message would you write on it? Interesting. Interesting. Well, my wife would say, love conquers all. That's what she tells me every single day to keep my feet grounded. Um, I think that's probably a good, that's a good thing. I'll take something from her. She'd be very happy with that. Um, I, I, it, it's a sort of small world, I think we were talking. Um, we're both from Bristol, um, you know, in Dubai, away from our families. Um, it's a small world, and I think COVID, if anything, COVID has taught me to lean in, get closer. Um, you know, on LinkedIn since January the 1st, I've wished every body that I'm connected with on LinkedIn happy birthday, or congrats on your work anniversary. It's small, but for me, it's just a way of staying connected. It's a way of saying COVID was a tough time but we're a united industry and a small but globally connected industry. And for me, that's really important. I think uh, what I and our friends from uh, the Wood Couture podcast, we learned one thing today, that you're not only a great professional, but above all, you're a great human being. Thank you Philip, very much. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. Thank and you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. It's been fun. Pleasure.